Welcome back, everybody, to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. Once again, your host, Drew Von Sayos, have to bring you the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, and Pittsburgh Pirates. Just want to take a second here and say it is great to be back in the studio. Our streaming service has been restored, and we are back and better than ever here in the Bethany College Communications Department. Now, getting into the sports of things, starting with the Pittsburgh Penguins, who, for the record, in case you didn't get the opportunity to watch, had an absolutely embarrassing, embarrassing performance Tuesday night at home against the Edmonton Oilers. I mean, it was horrendous from start to finish. You could just tell that the Oilers, they simply wanted it more than the Penguins. And when you have that will and you have that determination that the Edmonton Oilers had and the Penguins didn't bring that, I mean, it was never going to be an easy battle for the Penguins to fight. But they simply just did not show up for it. And, again, I don't know what the issue is with the Penguins. I don't know why they continue to deal with this on a nightly or even daily occurrence if they're playing an afternoon game. But this is not something new with the Penguins, where they are just not showing up. I mean, this has been consistent over the past three to four weeks, where the Penguins have just been outplayed in every circumstance of the game offensively defensively power play penalty kill goaltending I mean you name it the Penguins have been outplayed and it's just unfortunate to deal with because the Penguins were in such a prime position to be successful in the Metropolitan Division this year and they just let it go to waste And the Penguins, unfortunately, are now in a situation where they're struggling to even clinch a spot in the Metropolitan Top 3. I mean, for all we know, they could very well end up being the wildcard team. That's still not out of the picture. They're just a point ahead of Washington, and both teams have one final game to play. So the Penguins could easily be in a situation where they drop tonight's contest against the Columbus Blue Jackets, Washington wins their final regular season game, and then it's Washington who finishes third, takes on the New York Rangers, and it's the Penguins who go on the road to take on the Florida Panthers. That is still a legitimate possibility. And, I mean, nothing against... Casey DeSmith or even Louis Domingue, whoever is in goal for the Penguins, more than likely to be Casey DeSmith, they can only do so much. They really can. And this Penguins roster is just not doing them any favors whatsoever. I mean, these guys, being the forwards and defensemen, need to really step it up. We're going back to the way that things were at one time where it's really only one line doing the bulk of the scoring and actually showing up. And that's Sidney Crosby's line with Jake Gensel. Brian Rust was Ricard Raquel. 
And that's another thing, too, for me. Ricard Raquel was playing his best hockey as a Pittsburgh Penguin when he was lining up next to Sidney Crosby. Why in the hell would Mike Sullivan change that? I understand that Crosby plays well with Rust, and especially down on Evgeny Malkin's line, Rust hasn't been hasn't been performing the way that he once was. But when you have Ricard Raquel, who is playing his best hockey as a Penguin next to Crosby, you don't change that line. And Mike Sullivan goes out and does it. He swaps Crosby, his right winger, brings back Rust, moves Raquel back to Malkin's line, and Raquel isn't scoring as much and contributing as much on Malkin's line. Rust hasn't found his groove yet. So my question is, what did you get out of that, Mike Sullivan? What are you getting out of this with Ryan Rust back on Crosby's line and Raquel back on Malkin's line? Because right now, I'm not seeing absolutely any reason why those two should have been switched. And it's quite honestly surprising that Sullivan went ahead and made that change. And it's surprising that he hasn't gone back to the way the lines originally were supposed to be, with Raquel on the first line, Rust on the second line. And when I say supposed to be, I mean what was working for them previously. Because Gensel Crosby Raquel was working for the Penguins. Gensel Crosby Rust is working but not as well. And Mike Sullivan is dead set on playing Brian Rust with Jake Gensel and Sidney Crosby. Now, we found out just within the last 24 to 48 hours that David Morehouse, the Penguin CEO, is stepping away, citing that he wanted to spend some more time with his family, be able to take his kids to their sporting events, and that he has accomplished everything he wants as an executive for the Pittsburgh Penguins. That right there tells me there's a falling out somewhere between him and either Ron Hextall, Brian Burke, or the Fenway Sports Group who have taken over ownership of the Penguins. Because this news just came completely out of nowhere. This was not something that was speculated about when Lemieux was still the owner, Ron Burkle was still there with the ownership. This just came about within the last 24 to 48 hours, and it was a shocking news story. And to me, that leads to a lot of questions that those two, whether it was Morehouse and Burkle, or Burke, I should say, Morehouse and Hextall, or Morehouse and Fenway Sports Group, there was a falling out somewhere. And now I'm not wondering if it's going to lead to even more scenarios where you see members of the Penguins front office step away or get fired. And, you know, Mike Sullivan was talking about this just hours after it happened and made reference to the fact that it was Morehouse who was set on the idea of bringing in Sullivan as a coach. That right there could be the spot of disagreement and the falling out. 
Fenway Sports Group, and Ron Hextall, Brian Burke, they could be at the point where they're ready to move on from Mike Sullivan, especially if the Penguins go into this first round, whether it's against the Rangers or whether it's against the Panthers, and get destroyed like they have over much of this last month, and they're out of the first round again four years in a row. I mean, that could seriously be a discrepancy there between Morehouse and the current members of the Penguin staff, Hextall, Burke, and Fenway Sports Group. Because, again, it was Morehouse who was set on the idea of bringing in Mike Sullivan, and now Morehouse is stepping away. I mean, and let's not forget, Ron Hextall inherited Mike Sullivan as the head coach of the Penguins. Don't you think that Ron Hextall is going to want to bring in a coach of his choosing, someone that's going to play the way that Ron Hextall wants to play, and bring in a coach that will be able to adjust and not be so dead set on his methods and try to force a square peg into a circle hole the way that Mike Sullivan is continuing to do with this Penguins roster right now? Because let's be real here. The Penguins are a one-instrument band. If you solve that, you have successfully defeated the Pittsburgh Penguins. And that is why the Penguins have had such minimal playoff success over the past four, even five years. I'll go back to the 2018 series against Washington when they lost in the second round. Even if you throw that in there and say the past five years, that is why the Penguins have and will continue to have such difficult times in the playoffs because Mike Sullivan does not adapt very well. Nothing changes with his system. They are a team that is trying to continue to play with speed when they don't have the personnel to play with speed. They are trying to play this speed system, and it's just not working. And Mike Sullivan doesn't have any other sort of game plan to fall back on when the speed system does not work. The Penguins aren't going to be able to switch to something like we saw the New York Islanders do a few years ago, where it was a slow 1-3-1 personnel setup, and it was boring hockey. Not that I want the Penguins to be playing that style of hockey, but it would be much more acceptable if the Penguins switched to that kind of a style or anything different and were able to come away with wins and get points and go deep into the Stanley Cup playoffs. I mean, we're not seeing that with this current speed system. We're not seeing it at all from the Pittsburgh Penguins. And this is a team that looks lethargic. They look extremely worn out and tired. I don't know what the issue is with them. Is it the fact that they're an aging roster and just don't have it in their tank anymore to play 82 games at full speed? I mean, if that's the case, then this Penguins team is going to be in, in major need for a shakeup. Because you're not going to be able to continue with this roster that is only good for 60, 65 games. You're just not going to be able to 
continue with that going forward. And if it means breaking up the core, if Malkin or Latang decide they want more money elsewhere and the Penguins have to try and put together a roster on a limited salary cap, then you let them walk. It's as simple as that. And I'm not advocating for Ron Hextall and the ownership group to break up the core of Crosby, Malkin, Latang. I'm not advocating for that whatsoever. All I'm saying is, if that's how the cards are shown, then that's exactly what you have to do. And if you lose Malkin, you lose Latang, then you have two options. You either try to reload and go out and bring in elite talent to replace them that you can get for cheaper or you just scrap it all and start the rebuild because this nonsense of doing well the first 60-65 games of the regular season and then just crashing and burning over the final 15-20 to and crashing and burning in the playoffs it's just not going to cut it and this is something that the Penguins cannot continue to do. And if they continue to go down this line, they're going to lose more and more fans. I mean, hell, the Penguins were being booed Tuesday night at home in PPG Paints Arena. That's how pathetic that game was for them. I have been a Penguins fan my entire life, as far back as I can remember. And there has never... I, well, I shouldn't say never, but very, very few instances where the Penguins were booed at home on their home ice by their own fans. And that right there says something. That right there tells you change is needed. The Penguins have to do something differently. Otherwise, it's just going to be another first-round exit for them. And to be quite honest with you, that's exactly what I'm expecting, whether it's the Rangers, whether it's the Panthers. Unless the Penguins do something that completely changes my mind, I'm calling it right now. The Penguins lose the first round in five games. They'll get away with one win, possibly, but they're not going to do anything more than that because they have been unconvincing over the last month of this regular season. You are listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio when we return discussing the Pittsburgh Pirates as we've recently had an outfielder make his Major League debut along with Derek Shelton going to the opener strategy and one veterans player's early struggles right here on the Three Rivers Talk Show.
we're back here on the Three Rivers Talk Show for the latest now with the Pittsburgh Pirates. As I mentioned before the break, one young outfielder made his Major League debut, and he goes by the name of Jack Sawinski. Of course, Sawinski, if you follow along with the Pirates minor league affiliates, Sawinski was in AA Altoona. And the storyline as to what happened was that Originally, it was Cole Tucker and Brian Reynolds who both tested positive for COVID-19. And so the Pirates went down. They brought up Jack Sawinski from the Altoona Curve along with Tucapita Marcano. Of course, this was a last-minute decision that had to be made because it was just a few hours before the game when this happened. And... Indianapolis was on the road. I believe they were out in Iowa. You can correct me and check that, but I believe they were out in Iowa. And so there was no way that any member of the Indianapolis Indians was going to get here in time. So Jack Sawinski, Tukapita Mercano were called up. And Sawinski has done very well in his early goings here as a member of the Pirates. Defensively, I should say. He has been able to make the plays that you would expect him to make. At the plate, struggling a little bit. I mean, he's 2 for 12 with an RBI. But I will say this. Do not freak out by his current stats. I mean, this is a guy who had not played in AAA this season. He got called up directly from AA. That is a huge jump for a star prospect to be making. Much less one like Sawinski, who he's not a star prospect, but he's not a bad prospect either. He's kind of like that middle-of-the-pack group. So for Sawinski to be... At this point, I still consider it a win. And it gives the Pirates an early look at what he can do. If he can go back to Altoona, when the time comes, he can improve on what he's learned here in the major leagues. Hopefully halfway through the season, gets promoted to AAA Indianapolis. And then we could see a newer and better version of Jack Sawinski early in 2023. Now, Sawinski is going to continue to get at-bats. Until he gets sent down to AA Altoona, or if the Pirates decide they want to move him to AAA Indianapolis, wherever he gets moved to, he is going to continue to get at-bats until that happens. It does not make any sense to have a guy like Jack Sawinski on your Major League roster if you are not going to get him the at-bats. And the Pirates are going to do, as I said, exactly that. I mean, I can look at the lineup right now and tell you he's batting sixth tonight and playing in right field against the San Diego Padres. I mean, he's going to continue to play. Whether he goes 3-for-3 with a home run and two doubles or 0-for-3 with three punch outs and leaves nine on base. Regardless of the scenario... He is going to continue to play. And 
whether or not he catches some success here, only time will tell. But I'm hoping that we can see Sawinski start to turn the quarter and start to put the ball in play more, get it to drop, get on base, take it an at-bat at a time, and start to build his confidence and start bringing up the numbers. Batting average, on-base percentage, OPS, slugging, whatever it may be, start bringing those up. Because Jack Swinski is a guy that has the capability of being a fairly decent power hitter. He's obviously not going to be a David Ortiz or a Nelson Cruz who hits 35, 40 home runs every year. That's not the type of player he is. But he definitely could be the one to consistently land between 15, 20 bombs a season. And that would be a success for the Pittsburgh Pirates. That truly would be. And if they can get multiple of those guys in their lineup. And so Jack Sawinski, despite his early struggles at the plate, do not count him out. He will turn it around. Now, in regards to the pitching, we saw, well, we have been seeing the Pirates rotation struggle tremendously. And I've harped on it time and time again. And Derek Shelton is finally realizing that the Pirates rotation is, for lack of better words, an absolute joke. Aside from Jose Quintana, who has been the only one to show some consistency and ability to pitch more than four innings in a game. And so what Derek Shelton has done, and this occurred when Bryce Wilson made his last appearance, which I believe was Wednesday. I will double-check myself here in a second. Dylan Peters pitched the first two innings. And then he was followed by Bryce Wilson. As a matter of fact, it was Thursday when this happened. Actually, just yesterday. Where, no, 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 scratch that, because yesterday was Quintana. It was Monday when this happened, I believe. No, because Monday was when Zach Thompson pitch for the Pirates. Regardless, in the Brewers series, Dylan Peters opened the game for Bryce Wilson. And it worked tremendously for the Pirates. Because Dylan Peters was able to go out, set the tone, and then Bryce Wilson came in, flipped arms, and was able to pitch well. Because what we've seen is the Pirates have struggled in the first inning with conceding runs. And I'm finding it here now, it was just Wednesday. I was looking at the wrong week in regards to when the Pirates played the Brewers. It was Wednesday. Peters pitched two scoreless innings as the opener. Bryce Wilson came in, pitched Four innings of one-hit baseball. So between the first six innings, 
the Pirates conceded two base runners, a walk from Peters and a hit from Bryce Wilson. And yes, they still lost the game. That was the one time Will Crow came in and got roughed up a little bit. But you know what? Will Crow wasn't going to be able to keep his scoreless streak going forever. Dylan Peters has continued his, but Crow's is unfortunately gone. And I like the idea of using Dylan Peters as an opener for Wilson, whether it be him, whether it be Zach Thompson, Mitch Keller, or even JT Brubaker. Because first of all, all of the starters, aside from Quintana, are righties. If you use Peters, he's a lefty. So you have that switching of the arms, and you get Peters to deal with the first six guys in the lineup. Then you bring in Wilson, Thompson, Keller, or Brubaker to face 7, 8, and 9 in their first appearance, first inning of the appearance. And then when they come out already warmed up, then they can face one, two, and three. Now, that's assuming that the bare minimum is faced in each of those innings, but you get the idea that those games are going to be much easier for the Pirates to deal with when the starter doesn't have to face one, two, and three in the order in the first inning. Now, Dylan Peters obviously isn't going to be able to serve as the opener each and every time one of those four take them out because, let's be real here, Dylan Peters can't pitch four out of five days a week even if it is just an inning. So the Pirates are going to have to figure something out with three or maybe two of their starters. You know, if it's spaced out appropriately where Peters pitches two innings as an opener for Bryce Wilson, say, on day one, Maybe he can go again day four and be an opener for Brubaker or be an opener for Keller. I mean, the Pirates would have to work something out there, but the rotation just as a whole needs to get better. And speaking of needing to get better, Yoshi Sutsugo has been struggling for the Pirates over the course of the early goings of the season, hitting just 185, had a blunder of an error in the series here against the Brewers that recently just finished up. And Yoshi Tsutsugo was a guy that I had a lot of expectations for this season. I thought he was going to be able to come in, be a mainstay in the Pirates lineup, and was somebody that was going to be a power threat for them each and every night. Well, I can say that so far, that has not worked for the Pirates. I mean, he is out of the lineup more than he is in it. And it was the same night when Peters and Wilson went, Wednesday night, that Yoshi Tsutsugo made the error, and he has not been in the lineup since. And the Pirates are going to have to do something to get him going. It is just 54 at-bats, so a lot can change. And if he improves over the course of the regular season, nobody's going to remember, well, I shouldn't say nobody, but most people aren't going to remember his early struggles. But if this keeps up, Yoshi Tsutsugo might not be a member of the Pirates much longer. 
and he's not in the lineup again tonight. You've got Michael Chavis at first, Josh Van Meter at second. I'm not even going to get into Josh Van Meter because that conversation would probably get me thrown off the air. Now, getting back to Yoshi Tsutsugo, the Pirates are going to have to find a way to get him back in the lineup. And it might not be pretty. Just like with Jack Sawinski, it might not be pretty. But you're going to have to see those two in the lineup. The difference being Sawinski has a lot more upside and more potential than Tsutsugo. And Tsutsugo is on thin ice because this happened to him in Los Angeles with the Dodgers. It happened to him in Tampa Bay with the Rays. And now we're seeing it again in Pittsburgh with the Pirates where he comes in, immediately lights up every baseball he sees, does super well, and then after a while, he falls off of a cliff and ends up getting designated for assignment. And then another team brings him in, and the cycle repeats. So we may be at that point where the cycle is starting to catch up to him, and he is in that downspurt with the Pirates. Obviously, I don't want that to be the case. I'm just saying he has a history of this with the two teams that he's been with in the major leagues previously. It's something to keep an eye on as the season progresses, and we'll see where it goes with Yoshi Tsutsugo. If he continues to be left out of the lineup, if he continues to not play, if he's thrown back in, or if the Pirates just cut ties altogether because Mason Martin is tearing it up right now in Triple A Indianapolis. And to be quite honest, the Pirates dodged a bullet that there wasn't a Rule 5 draft this year because Mason Martin probably would have been snagged. And the Pirates could easily look to move on from Sutsugo and bring up the hot-hitting prospect in Mason Martin. Again, only time will tell, but something to keep an eye on as the season progresses and the Pirates start to get that first wave of solid prospects make it to the major leagues, and Mason Martin more than likely going to lead that group. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. When we return, today's final segment, looking at round one of the 2022 NFL Draft and who the Steelers selection was right here on the Three Rivers Talk Show. Online Radio a service of the Communications and Media Arts Department.
back here on the Three Rivers Talk Show for today's final segment, looking at the first round of the 2022 NFL Draft. Almost said 2021 there for a second, but it is in fact 2022. The first round of the draft, who the Steelers selected, and where we could see them go here tonight for rounds two and three. So, first of all, this first round was very wide receiver heavy. Multiple wide receivers selected in the first round, including three consecutive picks of Ohio State wide receivers. And that just shows how deep this class is at the wide receiver position. And it's not very often where you see three teammates go back to back to back at the same position. It was Garrett Wilson starting it off at 10 with the Jets. Chris Olave went to the Saints at 11 after New Orleans traded up. And then at 12, Detroit got Jamison Williams after trading up, after already selecting Trevon Walker. Rather, Jacksonville took Trevon Walker. Detroit got Aiden Hutchinson. It has been a long week, to say the least. So Detroit grabbed Aiden Hutchinson at two and then came back and got a wide receiver at 12 in the form of Jamison Williams. And I beg your pardon, Jamison Williams out of Alabama. So it was back-to-back with Garrett Wilson, Chris Olave. But still a rare sight to see. Now, this whole draft, again, was very up in the air. We saw Tennessee trade A.J. Brown for the 18th pick in the draft. A.J. Brown is a star wide receiver for Tennessee, or was a star wide receiver for Tennessee. The Titans wanted to trade Brown to get the 18th pick and bring in Traylon Burks out of Arkansas. Then we saw Baltimore trade back into the first round for the 25th pick and drafted Tyler Linderbaum, the center out of Iowa, and to get the 25th pick, Baltimore gave up Marquise Hollywood Brown. So we are seeing a drastic shift in the NFL where teams are willing to move on from established veteran wide receivers to draft rookies who are not going to be paid as much and have just as much potential. We saw this several years back at the running back position where teams were just willing to let veteran running backs walk in free agency. And it was as simple as, we'll draft another one. We'll go out and find a rookie who can do just as good of a job as you. And now we're seeing that with the wide receiver position. And I just want to go on the record and say that all of this started when Jacksonville gave Christian Kirk that crazy contract. I mean, Christian Kirk is a decent wide receiver. 
but he is not worth what he got in Jacksonville. And if I remember correctly, it was four years, $72 million. Yes, in fact, that's what it was, $18 million per season for Christian Kirk. That number is just ridiculous, and that has caused this drastic shift in the game of football where teams don't want to pay wide receivers like Christian Kirk $18 million, much less somebody who is above his talent level that they're going to have to then pay between $20 and $25 million per season. Why would you pay that when you can go out, draft a rookie who's going to be brought in on a 3 to $4 million per season contract in his first five years, including the fifth-year option if you draft him in round one, you go out, bring in somebody like that, and you get just as much production, if not more. It makes perfect sense for teams to go out there and do that. All because Jacksonville decided that they wanted to pay Christian Kirk $18 million a year. I mean, that is where the NFL is at. And that is why so many wide receivers were taken in round one and the fact that it's a very deep wide receiver class. I mean, we saw several defensive linemen, edge rushers get taken as well. Those two positions, whether you want to say defensive end, edge rusher, and wide receiver, those are the two deepest positions in this draft class. And we saw several of them go in round one. And... Of course, I mentioned Aiden Hutchinson going to Detroit already. We saw Trevon Walker going first overall to Detroit. I mean, several defensive ends and edge rushers were taken in this draft. And there's still several out there that are capable of producing at the NFL level. Not that the Steelers need to take any because they have... T.J. Watt and Alex Highsmith, but there are some out there still for other teams to go out and grab. And a lot of offensive linemen went off the board last night as well. Mentioned Tyler Linderbaum. Of course, Tyler Smith was taken by the Cowboys. We saw several offensive tackles go, including Trevor Penning just before the Steelers made their selection at 19. And this is a draft, again, that is very deep at the offensive line position. So right behind wide receiver, right behind edge slash defensive end, whatever you want to label them as, you have offensive line in that mix as well. Now, getting to the Steelers pick, who, unless you've been living under a rock, know by now that the Steelers did, in fact, go out and grab Kenny Pickett, the quarterback out of Pittsburgh. Now, let me just start because I've seen it all already. Fans trying to wonder why they grabbed Pickett over Malik Willis, why they grabbed Pickett when they signed Trubisky, and why draft Pickett knowing he's 23 years old. I'm going to start with the first piece, Pickett over Willis. If you have been following along with the show on Spotify when our streaming service here on the radio station was down, for the last month, 
I have said that Malik Willis is a project quarterback. And it is too much of a gamble to go out and grab somebody like Malik Willis in the first round. He has the arm strength, and that's about it, aside from his ability to run. Very inaccurate, struggles to make secondary, tertiary reads, and is very poor over the middle of the field. Why would you grab that just because Mike Tomlin went to see him once when you have Kenny Pickett, who can run extremely well, escape the pocket, heave the ball downfield, and fit it into tight windows with impeccable accuracy. I mean, it's a no-brainer. And Mike Tomlin, Kevin Colbert even addressed that last night. They went out and got their guy. And as Mike Tomlin said, it just so happened to be the guy next door referring to the fact that the Pitt Panthers and the Steelers share a facility. It's the same building. One door leads you into the Pitt side. One door leads you into the Steelers side. I mean, it was a gift that Kenny Pickett was there at 20 for the Steelers to grab. And I'll now address the second thing that I mentioned earlier. Why grab Pickett if Trubisky was there? If you have Trubisky on your roster already. First of all, Nobody knew when free agency started that Kenny Pickett was going to fall to 20. If there was absolutely no market for Kenny Pickett in the draft, the Steelers would not have signed Mitch Trubisky, and Kenny Pickett would be your day one starter for the Steelers in September. And he still may be, because Mike Tomlin has already said, Kenny Pickett will be given the opportunity, along with Mitch Trubisky and Mason Rudolph, to compete for the starting position. Now, again, nobody knew Pickett was going to be there at 20. So the Steelers had to do their due diligence, go out and grab Pickett, or rather Trubisky, in free agency before he got snatched up by somebody else. And then it just so happened that Pickett was there when they were due to select. And at that point, it's a no-brainer as well. Mitch Trubisky, his contract is loaded with incentives. Meaning that if he doesn't play, he's not going to get as paid as much as what the original reports show him to be making. Right now, even if he plays and hits every incentive, Mitch Trubisky will make $7 million per season for the Steelers. That's if every incentive in that contract is hit. If those incentives are not hit, he's making less than that $7 million. He might make $4 million. He might make $3.5 million, $3 whatever it may be. That is backup quarterback money. That's essentially what the Steelers are paying Mason Rudolph right now. Three, three and a half million. And they're going to be giving that to Mitch Trubisky in terms of a base salary. The rest is in incentives. So if Trubisky ends up backing up Pickett, it's not the end of the world. Because then you have Pickett who's starting. You have Trubisky there who can help mentor, help develop, along with working alongside quarterbacks coach Mike Sullivan and the offensive coordinator Matt Canada. But it also gives the Steelers a cushion in the event 
that maybe Pickett beats out Trubisky, but then gets too, put on too big of a stage, and they have to turn to Trubisky in the first season that Pickett is in the league, and then go back to Kenny Pickett in 2023. I mean, that very well could happen. And the thing is, and this is the third component of the complaints that have already arisen from the fan base. Yes, Kenny Pickett is 23 years old right now. He will turn 24 before the season starts. Do you think I care about that? Absolutely not. And nobody in the Steelers fan base should either. Joe Burrow was drafted by the Cincinnati Bengals at 23 years of age. It took him two seasons to get them to the Super Bowl. Now, Cincinnati was on the rise for quite some time prior to the Bengals getting to the Super Bowl as a result of having several early first-round picks on their roster and crucial second-round picks bolstering the team. But Joe Burrow was an older draft pick who went number one overall. There was no question from the Bengals fan base about Joe Burrow being 23 years old when he was drafted. Why are the Steelers fans upset about that with Kenny Pickett? Because they like to find something to complain about. That is exactly why. Kenny Pickett was the Steelers' number one quarterback on their board. He was in their lap at pick 20, and they woke up, and it felt like Christmas morning for Mike Tomlin and Kevin Colbert. That's exactly what just happened with the Pittsburgh Steelers. And I'm very excited for Kenny Pickett. Even if he doesn't start year one, sits behind Trubisky for the entire season, more than likely he's going to end up starting 2023. Because let's be honest here, Ben Roethlisberger was not made to start right away for the Steelers. He only got thrown into the fire in week three because Tommy Maddox was hurt, or got hurt, I should say. And Roethlisberger went in and took the job and never looked back. Nobody's saying that that's what's going to happen again here in Pittsburgh with Trubisky getting hurt, Pickett taking the job and never looking back. All I'm saying is that if Tommy Maddox did not get hurt, Ben Roethlisberger probably wouldn't have played his rookie season. It would have been, at the minimum, the start of the 2005 season when Roethlisberger took the reins from Tommy Maddox. And the Steelers have been in a situation where they haven't needed to really draft a franchise quarterback since Roethlisberger. I mean, yeah, they went out, they drafted a handful of guys, Landry Jones, Josh Dobbs, Mason Rudolph. But let's be honest, Mason Rudolph was the only one that really had a shot in hell of winning the starting job. And with the drafting of Kenny Pickett, that has pretty much gone down the drain. And I like Mason Rudolph. I wish him nothing but the best. But it's very obvious that the Steelers want to go in a different direction. And I feel personally it's only a matter of time before Mason Rudolph 
request the trade. That's just my gut feeling. Not saying it's going to happen, just my gut feeling. So, now that Kenny Pickett is in place for the Steelers, there's a lot of areas in which they can address tonight for rounds two and three. Wide receiver is a position of need for the Steelers. I mean, you have Deontay Johnson. Nobody knows what his contract scenario is going to be. Is he going to hold out? Is he going to show up? Chase Claypool, I mean, if he can grow up and get back to the way he produced in 2020, he will be an immense wide receiver threat. Miles Boykin, a little bit of a question mark. I mean, at best, he's probably going to be a backup. Gunnar Olszewski is mainly for special teams. I mean, he's going to be the Steelers' equivalent of Ryan Switzer or Ray Ray McLeod. And then the only other option potentially would be Anthony Miller, who, again, is a huge question mark, more than likely set to be a backup at best. So even if Johnson shows up, doesn't hold out with the contract, you're going to have Johnson on one side, Claypool on the other, and you need somebody in the slot. So the Steelers would not be surprised if I come back on the show Monday to discuss that the Steelers went out and brought in a wide receiver. Who it may be, that will just depend upon how the early goings of round two play out. I mean, it could be anybody that obviously wasn't taken already. I mean, that seems fairly obvious, but, you know, just have to make myself clear in that regard. Defensive line is an area in which the Steelers could address. Nobody knows what's going to happen to Stephon it if he's going to come back. The Steelers, if they feel like he might come back, then they could wait until the later rounds to address it. But I wouldn't be surprised if defensive line wasn't in strong consideration here tonight. Offensive line, personally, which is where I thought the Steelers were going to go in the first round, not expecting Kenny Pickett to fall into their lap, but I thought offensive line was going to be the route the Steelers went. Whether it was Tyler Linderbaum at center or whoever it could have been, I did not see the Steelers going without an offensive lineman in this draft. And I personally, like I said, thought they were going to go that route in last night's pick. But now it's of utmost urgency because you've got Kendrick Green, James Daniels, Mason Cole competing for your center position, who nothing against any of them aren't the best in terms of a center especially Kendrick Green. They could all make up fairly decent guards, but they're not center material. So you have to find somebody and figure out who your center is going to be. In an offensive tackle, you've got Chuksakorafor on the right, and left tackle is still a little bit of a question mark. I mean, Zach Banner is gone, and... The Steelers have to figure out who the left tackle is going to be. Of course, they have some interior options already set up as I'm drawing a blank at who that possibly could be. But 
Le Glue possibly being one. Of course, Dan Moore Jr., that's who would be at left tackle. Dan Moore Jr. at left tackle. As soon as I saw the name, I recognized it and knew right away. It's been a long week, people. So you got Dan Moore Jr. at left tackle, Chukes a corner for a right tackle, and what happens if something happens to them? The Steelers are in a world of hurt at offensive tackle behind Chukes and Dan Moore Jr. So I could see offensive tackle being in play here tonight. And the Steelers, they may go a different direction in both rounds. But these positions at some point would have to be addressed in the draft. Wide receiver, offensive line, particularly offensive tackle, and defensive line. You are listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Best in the Online Radio. I thank you all for tuning in here on this Friday afternoon. And be sure to tune in on Monday at 3 o'clock for the final episode here in the studio for this spring semester for the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers. Pittsburgh Penguins, and Pittsburgh Pirates. Enjoy the weekend, and I'll see you Monday.